So I have a funny story that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about today. When we very first started this church, we were over, um, I think this was when we were in the Spirit, this, no, we weren't in the Spirit of Liberty building. This was when we were at the place next to Jewel that no longer exists because the tornado took it down. Anyway, we weren't inside, just in case you're wondering, obviously, because here we are. Anyway, um, it was Veterans Day, and uh, Pastor Michael called out, so, if there are any veterans in the room, you know, would you please stand? And Isaac, I don't remember how old he was, but he was pretty small. He's like, Dad, stand up. You're a vegetarian. <laughs> I was at the time, so there you go. Uh, <laughs> so, we're still working our way through the book of James. And uh, I feel like James just keeps turning the heat up, you know? Like, He'll just, you think he said everything he's going to say that then now he's going to move into something that's maybe a little lighter. Maybe he's going to give you a moment to go, okay, okay, I can work on that for a while, James. But no, he just jumps right into the very next thing. Um, But he's trying to accomplish something here. He's addressing some divisive behavior that was happening in this early community of believers. And so this letter wasn't just addressed to one group of people. Uh, oftentimes when we think of Paul's letters, for example, we know that he wrote those maybe to a specific group of people, and that's why many of them are named, you know, Corinthians, is because he wrote to the church in Corinth. Uh, James, however, in this uh, letter, what we believe is that there were many, many copies of this letter that were created, and then they were distributed to all of these different groups of believers, uh, basically all over the world at that time, the known world. And so uh, he addressed these things to Jewish believers in Messiah everywhere. However, we also know from the language that James used uh, that he was not just looking at those folks, but he was looking beyond those folks to the Gentiles that were also joining their congregation, which would be non-Jewish believers. He had all those folks in mind. So, judging from this passage, lots of bad stuff was going down. If you just read through it, you can kind of start to pick and say, okay, I, I, could, I know what that is. Oh, yeah, ooh, yeah. Good job, James, right? But these believers were facing trials and persecution, uh, not only from the uh, Roman government that was the world power at that time, but also from religious leaders. And so, James writes because the people were being hurt, they were being discouraged And their faith community was as well, but the persecution was also kind of happening on the inside. They were being hurt and discouraged by the supposed leaders of their community. And so he's going to address some of that stuff today. James basically said last week, guys, this is not how it should be. This is not how we should be treating each other. This is not a great example. If you're going to be a leader, you have to live by a certain standard, and you should not be treating people in this way. And so uh, over the past few weeks, we've actually peeled back the layers to look at a couple things, and I just want to remind you of these because they're important to what we're talking about today. True faith, in other words, what you really believe deep down, the thing that you hold on to inside your heart that you believe is true, it's revealed in two ways. The first way is this, what you do. The way that you behave, the things that you do reveal what you truly believe in your heart. So, for example, if you believe that microwave popcorn is the best thing ever, I would expect that I would see you eating a lot of it, right? If that's what you believe. And so in the same way, if we believe, as far as our faith is concerned, our actions reveal whom we serve and what's truly important to us. 
And that's a choice that we make every day. We talked about that. And so the first question really is just how are you living? How are you doing with showing what you believe in your life? And then the second, of course, thing is very close to it. It's what you say. The things that you say also reveal your true faith or what you really believe. And so the second question that challenges us there is how are you speaking? Like what are you saying? What, is your, uh, what are the words that come out of your mouth look like? And how do you treat others? So the way that we treat other people... These two things combine what you do and what you say. The way that we treat other people matters to God. It's a big deal to him. And the way that we use our words and our actions are crucial if we want God to be glorified in our lives. That's really our goal. That's what we're here for. We're just big reflectors as believers. We're supposed to reflect his glory to this world. We're supposed to serve and honor him in the midst of that. And so if we want God to be glorified and to be the people of love that Jesus, right, commands us to be, then these things should be important to us. And so last week, James called out those people who aspired to leadership. Uh, so that would indicate that some sort of power struggle is happening. We don't know exactly what, but something's going on there. And this week, James is going to connect the dots between all of these things, these two ideas especially, to reveal that there is one source and one source only for all of our behavior. And you probably already know what it is, but I'm not going to give it away just yet. James is brilliant, though, because he uses all sorts of tricks. Very tricksy, right? He uses all sorts of tricks. He uses this rabbinic tradition of asking a series of questions to get people thinking about these things, uh, and he never necessarily gives direct answers to them. He just kind of lofts them out there and then addresses some things. He wants to lead his readers, or his hearers in this case, because these were read out loud in communities much like this one. He wants to lead them to the answers that are provided in Scripture. It may have been a little bit like this. In 1930, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives, in an effort to alleviate the effects of the, anyone, anyone, the Great Depression, passed the, anyone, anyone, the tariff bill, the Hawley-Smoot Tariff Act, which anyone raised or lowered, raised, tariffs in an effort to collect more revenue for the federal government. Did it work? Anyone? Anyone know the effects? It did not work, and the United States sank deeper into the Great Depression. Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Anyone? Anyone seen this before? The Laffer Curve. Anyone know what this says? It says that at this point... On the revenue curve, you will get exactly the same amount of revenue as at this point. This is very controversial. Does anyone know what Vice President Bush called this in 1980? Anyone? Something D-O-O economics. Voodoo economics. (laughs) So, um, I have to admit, sometimes I look out there and and I see that. Just being honest. And I'm pretty sure that was Mandy Shanks in that video at one point, just saying. So, um, <laughs> so, um, so James is calling out these people. Um, he uses this rabbinic tradition. Hopefully you guys will be a little bit more engaged. Because one of the things that he also does is he will drop these little bombs in there just in case anyone's asleep, right, or starting to nod off during the letter. He will all of a sudden drop a thing in there. So hopefully you'll be into this. But he causes this stir in chapter 3, verse 13, when he asks this question, Who is wise and understanding among you? 
So when we read this in context, we just blow right into the next verse, right? But I imagine the situation, because he's addressing people in conflict, right? So he picks this genius way to start. He's like, listen, who here is wise? Raise your hands. Raise your hands if you're wise here, right? It's not hard to imagine as he gives this pause and waits. Gives the hearers a moment to think about this question. They might be saying some things to themselves like, well, well, why is he asking? Is he, is he going to recognize my efforts here? You know what? Maybe he's looking for new leadership. I'm wise. I'm wise. And then right when people might get ready to raise their hands. In a situation, by the way, when everyone thinks they're right, a question like this, when it's asked, most people internally would count themselves as the wise ones. And so that's exactly the problem that James wants to address. Check out what he does here. Who is wise and understanding among you, starting with verse 13 in chapter 3? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. It's very tricky. We're going to unpack this together. But what James is saying here, ultimately, is that the root issue for all that's going on within this place the things he's trying to address within these believers, the root issue that he wants to put an end to is pride. And so I want to start with the definition just so that we're all starting together in the right place. Pride is the sin of being preoccupied with self. It is considered to be the greatest sin because it's where all other sins begin. Hmm. It is viewed as a great evil because it involves pretending to a greatness and glory that belong rightly to God alone. And that comes straight from the Dictionary of Bible Themes. And so if you're a note taker, by the way, today, you're going to go mad. It's going to be nuts for you, okay? I just want to throw that out there because I'm going to be all over the place. So if you want these notes, I'm happy to send them to you. Just let me know. But defining pride, we need to start there. James basically saying, guys, listen, if you're really so wise, quit being so full of yourselves. Making friends already, James, I see. He's like, show your wisdom with your good actions towards others in a humble way, in the humble way that you serve, in the humble way that you live. Now, if you've been here for any amount of time, I know that we keep coming back to these themes. Like, I feel like I've talked about this over and over and over again. But if we're honest, this is a reoccurring theme in life for a reason. We're not good at it. Or we're good at it for a while and then... Stuff starts to happen, and we start to slip. And so, when this is a struggle continually for us, and I'm sure it was for these guys too, it's not surprising, or it shouldn't be surprising to us, that Scripture continually leads us back to these themes. And so, James is basically saying, listen, guys, you need to examine your motives, okay? In this family, there's no room for it. There's no room for bitterness. There's no room for jealousy. There's no room for selfish ambition, boasting, or attacking the truth with lies, This is pretty bold because James doesn't deny that there is another kind of wisdom. You know, I thought that he would take that down too, but he doesn't. He doesn't deny that selfish ambition can look like wisdom, but he does does address it. As disagreements arise, people become entrenched in the things that they want. How many of you have ever experienced that? 
you've gotten into a disagreement with someone, and there came a point in that disagreement where you could not move past it because both parties were so entrenched in the thing that they wanted. Anyone? Yeah, right? We've all experienced that. And here's the thing, especially in the church, many times it starts from a place of honesty. Someone's passionate about something that they believe in particular, maybe about the nature of God or what Scripture says about a given uh, subject. But most often, it's not about essential things. It's about things like methods of worship or things that aren't mandated by Scripture, right? The latitudes that God gives us in various places. So then those differences become personal, and they become bitter and angry, and people cling so tightly to their viewpoints that we all lose focus of Jesus in what's supposed to be a discussion, right? So in the church, we can become even unscrupulous, I would say, when we're defending a particular corner of our little Christian universe. Many of you might have heard of uh, the worship wars, which, by the way, are still going on, where you have the people, well, you know, hymns were good enough for Jesus, so they're good enough for me. Actually, he did sing some hymns, but... Not the way that when people say that, that they mean. And then you've got, oh, no, man, it needs to be modern worship because we need, you know, like, God is just so close. Those are preferences, preferences in worship. And yet people continue to do battle. And sometimes those battles can get ugly. And then this phrase comes out, well, you know what? The end justifies the means. In other words, whatever I do within that argument, within that discussion, within that conflict, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter what I do because it's for this end goal, right? So it's okay. So you have people saying things like, well, I might need to stretch the truth here a little bit. They probably wouldn't say that. They would just do it. Uh, Maybe you have to speak badly about someone or maybe you have to steal or you have to do whatever it is. But ultimately, it's for the kingdom. So it's cool, man. It's okay because we want in the end to glorify God, right? No matter what I have to do to achieve this goal, which is often claimed to be a God-given mandate, I'm going to do it. But here's the thing, folks, and I think this is important for us to remember. God is not going to command us to do something counter to his word to achieve his will. God is not going to command us to do something counter to his word to achieve his will. He doesn't need that kind of help. So James wants us to know that this type of worldly wisdom and thinking is not of God, as these people bicker and fight about these different things. So sometimes we're quick to defend ourselves or other leaders that we see using things like anger or discord or strife, people that stir up conflict or uh, other poor behaviors, things that you might describe as not telling the truth in love, not showing mercy, or displaying any of the fruits of the Spirit that are found in Corinthians. And I would just say that That's not the kind of leadership uh, that's godly leadership. Now, listen, we all make mistakes. We blow it sometimes. Sometimes uh, we we get in the way of ourselves. But the truth of the matter is, uh, godly leaders need to be consistently showing these kinds of things in their lives. Good fruits, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, things like that. So James makes it clear that this is selfish ambition. It's just pride described as wisdom. And it's not just unscriptural, but I love the way he says this. It's the complete opposite of godly wisdom. It's demonic. And if you actually look at the language he uses there, he means demonic. It's not a figure of speech. 
Um, we've been doing a marriage study on Wednesday nights, and it's been really good. It's called The Crazy Cycle. But uh, there's a, the guy that hosts it and has written the whole curriculum, his name is Dr. Emerson Eckerich. And he keeps saying this over and over. And when he talks about it, he's talking about it uh, in light of marriage and kind of like fighting fair, but more like discussing fair is what he's saying. But he keeps saying this, and I think it's good for us today for this purpose too. You can't use unholy means to achieve a worthy end. You can't use unholy means to achieve a worthy end. So what does that mean? It means that regardless of what we disagree on, we should still always behave in a godly manner, in a way that would honor him. We should treat our brothers and sisters always with dignity and respect, even if we have a disagreement. And then he goes on to give clear instruction on what God says a truly wise person should look like, which is helpful for us, right? Versus those who are serving their own ambition. So this begins in verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So what's he saying? It's like, listen, guys, if you want to be considered a wise person of God, if you want to lead people in the way that God wants you to lead people, you have to strive to be impartial. You can't be a hypocrite in your words or your actions. So let me give you a chart here. This is what it looks like to be truly wise people of God. These are some of the things that he called out. Humble, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, and full of mercy. And then I added this here. Good things are always growing in the garden of their lives because they're constantly planting these seeds of peace. Fruits of the Spirit have to grow from something, right? And then he talks about righteousness. And we've talked about that here before, the idea of righteousness being right withness or right with God, working right alongside his purposes for this world. Next, James directly addresses uh, the conflict. And he's like, listen, what's the source of all your arguments and fighting? He asks another question. Again, this is one of those bombs that he drops in there to wake everybody up. He just kind of smacked him around a little bit. Then he gave him a good example. And now he's like, okay, what's the problem? And you might expect that they might start answering. But before they can, (laughs) he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. There was a serious lack of humility that was happening within the communities that James wanted to address. And so he's trying to correct that problem. And here's what he says. Basically, here's the issue, guys. There's a conflict raging in your hearts, and it's spilling out over into your lives. You always want your own way. You want what you don't have. Jealousy consumes you. You focus on your own desires, and you will stop at nothing to get it even murder, right? And there's been this ongoing debate about that word murder, right, in here where uh, some commentators believe, well, it was just a figure of speech as far as James was concerned. But I just want to point out something. 
The word that's used for covet here is the same root word that's used for the word zealot, okay? And we know that back in Jesus' day, zealots actually existed. And if you don't know what a zealot was, it was basically a terrorist. It was a person who believed that the only way to solve the conflict that was happening was through violence. Judas Iscariot was actually believed to be a zealot in this regard. His nickname was The Knife. Let me do that again. The Knife, right? So you've got these people that believed that Rome should be overthrown through violence. By any means necessary, resorting to whatever they had to do. But we also know just from reading scripture that it wasn't uncommon to resort to violence to settle religious disputes, right? People being thrown off the top of the temple like James eventually will be. People chucking rocks at him until they're dead. So it's not hard to imagine that that's what was going on. And unfortunately, this still happens today. Right? And as I say that, I know that many of you are probably thinking about that church in Texas. And while we know that wasn't religiously motivated, it is just a stark reminder to me how we still allow... uh, the conflict in our hearts, the anger that we have to spill out into our lives and into violence. And so even if James's reference here isn't a literal one, you might be saying to yourself, well, dude, I'm, I'm not going to ever do that. Bless you. I'm not going to ever do that. That's not me. Even if it's not literal, we have this position that we've been given here by our Messiah, Jesus. And here's what he says to us. And I'm just going to paraphrase this. Our forefathers said, you shall not murder, right? And if you do... You will face judgment. But I say that everyone who is angry with his brother faces judgment. Even if you insult your brother, you'll face the council. And what he was referring to there was the Sanhedrin. There's two things you need to know. Number one, that would have been a judgment from a group of your peers. And number two, it would have included an account of your personal credibility. Those details are important there. So even if you insult your brother, you're going to face the council and have to answer for yourself. And then if you call your brother a fool, you're going to face eternal punishment. Again, we have Jesus here ratcheting it up a notch, right? He doesn't take it down a notch. He takes it up a notch. He's like, listen, guys, anger in your heart, it's the same thing as murder. You might as well murder someone because the seed of murder is right here in you. Harboring anger is every bit as bad as carrying it out. Anger is the root of murder, and it's not something that we should allow in our lives. And then James goes on because, you know, James, he's not going to be outdone by the Messiah. He's going to actually turn it up a notch, too. You adulterous people. Wouldn't it be weird to actually just start a sermon in James 4, 4? And like the first scripture that you read, you adulterous people. I bet that's happened somewhere, but not here. (laughs) So he goes on. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Wow. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously, jealously, it's hard to say, over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So just a few things here. James calls out this conflict in their hearts. And he calls them adulterous people. And I gave you a couple of other scripture references there. But the idea here is like, listen, you guys are running around town. You're cheating on God. You're flirting with the world. You're chasing your selfish desires. And when you do that, God is dethroned as the object of your heart's affection. 
When you chase all of these things, you're worshiping them, essentially. Exodus 23 tells us that we are to have no other gods before him. And so James wants them to know, like, listen, guys, your hearts are divided. And again, this is a pride issue because when we make choices that are not of God, when they're not what God has commanded, we're saying that we know how we should live better than he knows. James is hardcore, man. Jesus also addressed this in Matthew 6 when he said, we can't serve two masters. It's impossible. Of course, he ties that to money, but what he has to say there is true of anything. Because you're going to love one of the masters and you are going to despise the other. That's just how it works. And we also know from Scripture that we become what we love. We become what we worship. The thing that's our focus that means the most to us is going to be the thing that we worship. It's just how it is. It's how we're created. We were made to worship. So, if your desires are money or power or recognition or being esteemed as wise or being right, if those things are what's important to you, your pride is going to show in the way that you behave, right? It's going to come out of you. We learned that at the very beginning. It, it just happens. We can't help it. It's going to come out. And when it does, it ain't pretty. It wrecks not just your life, but often the lives of other people. So, you guys doing okay? You look a little bit like the kids in that video, I'm just saying. <laughs> this is a hard message, but here's the thing. We have hope, okay? And I'm glad that James keeps talking, <laughs> that he doesn't just leave it there. Because he tells us this. But he, meaning God, God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's our hope. Our hope is to become these humble people that know our place in the world, that know who God is. Well, I should be, a better way to say that would be that we know that he's God and that we aren't. Probably the best way to say that. We know our place in this world, and we humbly follow him. And so... I have this list for you guys. I just want to put this before you. Um, this comes from a counselor and author. His name's Alfred H. Ells, E-L-L-S. You can look it up online if you want to. But uh, in his counseling with people, especially people that he's dealing with that are struggling with an element of pride, and his, most of his counseling is relational, so it's disputes between people or marriage counseling, um, he's like, listen, these are evidence of pride in your life. Now, I don't have all of them for you guys, but I have most of them. And what I tried to do was to connect scripture to each one of these, just so that you'll have it. So um, here they are. And there's a lot, right? Some signs of pride. These could be, if this is happening in your life, these could be signs of pride. And some of them were surprising to me too, like insecurity. But if you think about it and what that scripture in Matthew says, it's like, you know what? When we're insecure in the way that we live, we're not viewing ourselves the way that God sees us. And we're not viewing him as the provider of our needs. I'd never thought about it that way. Uh, another sign would be the need to be right. Or if you're argumentative, more invested in being heard than in hearing. If you're angry, if you're irritable and impatient, if you lack a submissive attitude on a regular basis, if you're not easily corrected, if you're receiving correction but you're not changing, if you're stubborn, or if you're caught up in comparisons and competition. Wow. I mean, that's convicting for me to read that list. 
But here's the thing. God extends grace to the humble. But he expects us to do the same, folks. And these are all obstacles to extending that grace. The proud set themselves up as enemies of God, he says, which is a dangerous place to be. So what do we do when we find ourselves slipping maybe into these ways of thinking, right? He has to have some answers. He can't just leave us hanging, James. Come on. Well, here's what he says. Verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. I used to think that verse 10 meant that if I could just go around being kind of dumpy and downtrodden, that it was like this secret way for God to exalt me in something. Like I was going to trick him, you know. Oh, yeah, thanks for saying that. It's really great. No, it's okay. When do I get mine, right? Note that that's at the end of all of these other things that James is talking about. So what do we do? Hashtag resist, right? We have the power of God's spirit within us. And he promises us that we don't have to be people who are caught up in things like pride and anger. If he commands us, if he's saying, hey, this is something you should do, he's going to give us the ability to do it. And so the enemy will flee, he says, when we put up a fight. And so everybody needs this in your kitchen. Not today, Satan. I just thought it was hilarious it was a cross-stitch. You agree. Thank you, small child. So you're like, okay, that's great. That's really cool. So how do I resist? What do you mean? Do I need to march? What is this all about? Ephesians 6. Most of us are familiar with it. Uh, But it basically lets us know that this battle for our hearts, if we're looking anywhere else other than a spiritual source, then we're misguided. Because Ephesians 6 tells us that this battle for our hearts is a spiritual one. And so Paul offers this example of a soldier putting on, army, or putting on armor to resist the enemy. And he gives us this list. And this would be a great sermon for another time or maybe even a great series. So I just want to throw this up here so you can see it. But all of these things, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, all of those things, right, are part of that kit that we can defend ourselves. Each of these elements, folks, are rooted in the last one, which is God's word, right? The sword of spirit, which is an offensive weapon as well. It's defensive and offensive. And so the point here is that our fight is not against our brothers and sisters. The point here is not, is like our fight isn't even against all the people that are out there in the world that maybe we don't agree with. That's not where our fight is. Our fight is against the enemy and evil principalities. That's the fight. That's where our attention needs to be directed to. But the war that rages often rages here. Inside of us, in our hearts. If we want to be strong with the Lord's strength and stand stand up against the enemy, right? Against his schemes, then something important 
is required before we ever put any of this on. Before we ever put on that truth or that righteousness or the peace or any of those things, before we start taking that stuff out of our G.I. Joe footlocker and start putting it on, something else is important. Maybe you missed it in that verse. Before we do any of it, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And then everything else follows. We must be people who regularly submit ourselves to God before any of that other stuff can happen. And James actually paints a picture of that submission right here. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. You double-minded, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And what he's saying there isn't don't ever laugh. What he's saying is, listen, take this seriously. This moment, it's a big deal. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So if we draw near to God, he's going to meet us there. If we cleanse our hands and purify our hearts, what that looks like is confession and repentance and actually turning away from these things to follow Jesus. It doesn't mean that we might not blow it again some other time, but it means that when we do, we confess, we repent, we turn, and we keep following him. We don't stay there on the ground. We say, oh, I'm defeated. I just can't do it. And we get up. We keep going. And then we become single-mindedly focused on following the Lord. Proverbs 1.7 tells us, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And this is just one of a million verses in Scripture that talks about what wisdom in God's eyes looks like. So that fear that he's referring to there is this healthy reverence. I mean, and yeah, there might be real fear there. If you think about every time that God showed up in person someplace, people freaked out a little bit, didn't they? And I think in our day and time, we've lost a little bit of that reverence for him. This realization should break our hearts and it should shake us to the core because when we reject God's wisdom, folks, and we reject God's correction to pursue our own selfish way, we've placed ourselves dangerously in opposition to God and his purposes. When we despise wisdom and instruction and we don't heed it, That's a dangerous place for us to be, and it's the very definition of pride that we shared at the beginning. And here's the thing. We're believers in this room. At least I make that assumption. You're here because you're a believer. And if you're not, this is a good one to hear too. But we know better. We've read it over and over again. And so James is saying, when we speak against a brother or sister, this is what he's going to go on to say, that when we speak against a brother or sister, we place ourselves on the throne of pride above God. And that's where we're going to wrap up. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And he's kind of jumping back to an earlier subject here. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law or the Torah. It might be in your translation. And judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? I 
I am qualified to judge no one when I can't even get my own stuff together. Right? Same is true for all of us. If we can't even get ourselves together, the only sovereign judge is God. The only standard that we have is His Word. The Word is the only standard, the only true standard that we can measure our lives by. But we must start with our own lives. Right? When we judge others, what we usually do is we hold them to a higher standard often than we would hope we would be held to. I mean, we've always got an excuse for what we did or we didn't do. But when someone else offers that up to us, sometimes we can be a little less than merciful. And we know that James wants us to be merciful. Every time that we speak against someone or we lash out from our own selfish desires, we are, re- we are basically taking on a role that's reserved for God alone. And that's very presumptuous. I read this this week. When you're looking down on others, you fail to see who is above you. If you're looking for tattoo ideas, that's a good one. When you look down on others, you fail to see who is above you. Did that pastor just tell me to get a tattoo? Talk to your mom. So here's the question. What are we going to do with this? Like, how are we going to, are we going to allow this to change our lives? I know this is hardcore, guys, and I appreciate your patience. Because the only point of me standing up here in front of you to do what I'm doing right now is change. That's why God has me here. And believe me, change is a coming. (laughs) You can't see, but I'm playing it myself. If you're just listening to this, changes are coming. He changes me first. He smacks me around. And then I get to come and talk to you guys about it. I love it. So what are we going to do with this? I mean, we can see and we can hear this passage and we're like, oh, wow, man, that's awesome. Just another list of Bible do's and don'ts. And if that's where you're at right now, you're not going to get very far with this or with God in this. So here's how I choose to look at this. He keeps talking about love and mercy and all of these good things. We have to remind ourselves in the midst of this that those all come from God. Those are like his character traits. So it's not like we have this marvelous creator that's up there. Man, you are lame. You, yes, you. No, not the lady on the bus next to you. You, Bill Brown, are lame. That's not what's happening. Because if this creator that we serve, if those are his character traits, love, yes, thank you, mercy, please. This passage is an invitation from our father to something better. Because when you read through that stuff, that's not good. That's not better. Nobody wants to live in the midst of that. He created all things, including you and me. God knows that anger, jealousy, striving for self, and pride ultimately lead to a very dissatisfying end. Because you'll always be doing that. History speaks to it. Scripture speaks to it. God knows that anger and pride and bitterness destroy us from the inside out. Science has confirmed this. Not that we need science's confirmation. 
God knows that anger and pride and bitterness destroy us from the inside out, and it leaks out in our words and our actions to destroy others. And setting ourselves privately above others in judgment only sets them and us up for disappointment. Because if we're distracting people and they're looking at us, for the example, you're distracting them from Jesus, basically. And you will fail them. I'm not saying it will even be intentional. I'm just saying the only example we should ever be pointing to is him. So bottom line, we can't be full of pride and truly wise in God's eyes. His way is best. And so here's the main thing today. True wisdom comes from unconditional surrender. In every war, there comes a point, right, where the conflict is going to come to an end. And the people that want to live on the losing side, right, what do they do? Unconditional surrender. Whatever you're going to do, I just ask that you don't kill me, right? So church, this war that's raging in our hearts, we need to wake up and settle this conflict once and for all. We will never truly have victory in our lives and on this planet until we stop playing the field, weighing the benefits of God's way versus the world's way. Right? It's like, well, I think I'm going to do this today. Oh, you know what? God's got a good deal today, so I'm going with this. Well, you know what? It is Saturday and Sunday, and I kind of reserve that for God. So I'm going to do that. Oh, Monday's here. You know what? I think I'm going to do this. We've got to quit that. That's just nuts. We're going to go crazy. Straddling the line of salvation is what I wrote here. We've got to hit rock bottom. We've got to fall to our knees, and we have to look up to Jesus. Unconditional surrender. A prideful, disobedient, or unsubmissive believer will never see victory. Well, wow, that's harsh. Yeah, it is. Choose you this day who you will serve. And notice it says this day because you have to make that choice every single day. The battle for our hearts, folks, calls for unconditional surrender. So if we want to be the wise people that God wants us to be, we have to be people. We have to be Micah 6-8 people, right? We have to love mercy, walk humbly, and do justly. So my challenge for you today is to, to make that choice and surrender to him. Would you guys bow your hearts with me? God, we love you. <laughs> I hope there's never a day that I don't start a prayer in that way. We love you. I love you. I want to be a man that honors you. I want to be someone that you can look to and say, you know, he may have a lot of issues. He might be messed up, but you know what? I know he loves me, and I know he's trying. God, I'm so thankful for you and for the salvation that you freely offer us. 
I'm so thankful for the patience that you have with our lives as we try to make our way through this world and as the struggles and things happen inside our hearts. God, I'm just thankful for you that you never give up on us. So I pray for all the folks that are sitting here today that frankly are hearing kind of a tough lesson. That we would welcome the things that you want to do in our lives, that we would embrace you even in the times when you give correction because we know that good dads correct their kids. And you are a good, good father. So as we take a minute, God, to think about some of the things that you've challenged us to do, I pray that you just have our way, have your way in our hearts, that our our way would be cast aside in that unconditional surrender, that we would lay down our weapons, our bitterness, our anger, our pride, all of the things that hold us back from being the men and the women that you long for us to be, that we could lay those things aside for you. God, I pray that you would honor that and that your spirit would just break open in the lives represented in this room and in those that can hear my voice like never before, God. We love you and we thank you and it's in your name. Amen.